Southwestern family of companies welcomes you to the Action Catalyst. Each week, our diversely and amazingly accomplished guests share their insights and inspirations to help us ignite our own. So let's invest attention together to breathe, to reflect and refocus, and decisively defeat that voice we call Mr. Mediocrity. Then let's enjoy moving forward to make a positive difference in our world. Are you interested in advertising with the Action Catalyst? Our listeners could be hearing about your brand right here, right now. For details, shoot us an email at info at theactioncatalyst.com. Welcome back to the Action Catalyst. We've been talking with Dr. Dacker Keltner, professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, one of the most authoritative people about human emotion. And most importantly, from the standpoint that humans are born to be good, the title of one of his amazing books. Dacker's insights into human nature, and in particular, how we can grow to understand what moves and motivates ourselves and then others, help to become the basis of the amazing movie, Inside Out. And Dacker's got some fantastic things to share with us, so let's resume the interview. Now, you do give some some um, practical steps to help fight these corruption, uh, corruptive influences of power. The first one is saying, simply, simply just be aware that, that you're having this feeling, that... Uh, You've got Harry Potter's wand and you've got to decide to use it for the greater good. Otherwise, you may well get corrupted to join the dark side with it. So be aware. This is where I think the psychology is really useful, Dan. I mean, we can build in structural or organizational principles that prevent people from abusing power, right? Some of the companies I work with have very clear rules about not exchanging gifts as one example or careful ways to, you know, work with expense accounts and the like. But But psychologically, we know when people feel powerful and they can get into trouble in the ways that we've been talking about, about unethical behavior and harmful behavior, it tends to be preceded by a certain psychological state where you start thinking more about yourself, you you prioritize your own interests over other people, you start thinking in your omnipotence or that you're almost invincible and you even would answer yes to the following question, the world would definitely be a better place if I was in charge. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big question. Which is a, one of the most sort of revealing measures of narcissism. And so what I, I just caution readers of the power paradox to think about is, is your mind starting to produce that kind of content? Like you think you're really one of the best things that's ever walked the face of the earth. Then you're, you're heading toward trouble. So I think, yeah, we, we really need to be right. aware. You mentioned the second way to fight this is, is practicing humility. And I love when you say, if we can encourage and accept skepticism and pushback of those who enabled us to make a difference in the world, that because that's the power paradox, they've granted us this power. So we must stay self-critical, self-aware and keep that humility. Yeah. You know, Dan, you know, I think our country is hungry for a return to the virtues. And for a long time, at least in scholarship, we thought that business didn't really require virtue. And, you know, of course, you know, that's a mistake, right? And so one of the the virtues that I, I'm always so moved by is humility is kind of having a realistic view of your own strengths and weaknesses. And also, recognizing the strengths and and virtues of other people around you. And so I think that if we can stay close, be it through 
people rely on spiritual traditions or contemplative traditions, or they rely on other people to provide them really honest feedback. Great leaders often have some one individual they can go to who they can really say, is this out? Is this really a bad idea? There are a lot of different ways in which we can practice humility. You know, one of my favorites is to, to go backpacking, you know, and to just be humbled by mountains and trees. And, and there are new studies showing that if you can stay close to humility, you stay close to these principles that help you avoid abusing your power and make the, the best of your leadership. Well, and you talk about that greatly when you write about the emotion known as awe, that awe actually becomes from I'm nothing, I'm just a speck to putting me in perspective that, hey, we're all humans, we're all just specks, but together we can be something greater. It's really interesting, and nature does that so well. The, the third area to help fight this tendency toward, toward letting this power corrupt is to, to always stay outwardly directed on others. And you use the simple phrase, just give. Uh, give of time, talent, treasure. There's needs everywhere. Just pick one and start applying the principle of concentration and start making a difference and that can have a big impact. So staying focused on others and give. I know you spend time with, with prisoners. You spend time with schools. You, you do all kinds of things that nobody's ever going to know about. The fourth one is, is practicing respect. And we always say the boss deserves respect, but actually practicing respect, dignifying others, empowering them is all part of them wanting to give more power back to us. What is it about respect that makes somebody feel so energized when respect is given to them from somebody maybe in a superior position. You know, Dan, I've taught leaders here at Berkeley and at Stanford for 20 years, and I've probably taught 10,000 people, you know, coming out of organizations through executive education. And, you know, the, one of the singular themes that keeps coming back in the 20 years of teaching and, and also consulting and the like is people in organizations when their leaders treat them with dignity and they say thank you and they ask questions and they listen and let other people speak first before weighing in with their own opinions and they conduct themselves in a humble way, you know, all of these different specific micro ways that we can express respect to other people. I mean, time and time again, people tell me that's the most meaningful part of their work is to be dignified and heard and respected by leaders. And there's this amazing, you know, William James, the great American thinker and really a founding figure in psychology said, the deepest craving that humans have is to be appreciated by other people. And there's this new neuroscience that shows when, when I hear appreciative words of people who matter to me, and they say things like, Dan, I always appreciated your humility when you know, I knew you at Southwestern. Uh, when you hear those words, parts of your brain are activated that really produce a feeling of reward and strength and safety. So I think, again, you know, that one of the most underappreciated qualities of a healthy organization is just how much respect is created and shared. And the new science of organizational power and leadership is really starting to prioritize that. Mm -hmm. I was uh, blessed for decades to be able to watch Mr. Spencer Hayes, who passed away about a year and a half ago. Uh, I can't tell you how many board level meetings I was in where the person that jumped up to pour the water for everyone around the table was Spencer. 
and he didn't make a big deal out of it. It was just something that he felt important. And for this man that was the majority owner of our company, one of the most successful entrepreneurs in the world, one of the world's leading art collectors, a big difference maker, and he was the water pourer. It was just very you know, it's striking, Dan. I was, I was just teaching military leaders and, and there are different ways in which they, of course, respect is very highly cultivated in the military. But one of the things that really surprised me is that there are certain codes in which, you know, if there's only one place to sleep, the commanding officer will give it up to the, the subordinates, right? So they have this tradition of making sure leaders are aware of dignifying others and treating them with respect built into their their daily affairs. And again, it goes right back to feeding the notion that power is a gift that is granted, not something that one seizes, at least not for long. So that helps to feed the grantor. And then finally, you say there are people that feel powerless. And one of the ways that we can get over the feeling of letting power corrupt us is to find an aspect of powerlessness and go to work on it, make it better. In my own experience, it's been something as simple as asking people if they're frustrated with society, when was the last time they voted? Yeah. And then actually, it's, I've, I've been known to carry people down to a voting registration place and say, it's time to register to vote and follow up and do that. It, it helps to eliminate that feeling. But when people feel powerless, what, what are some other aspects of that, that that we can do to address powerlessness and therefore make people more willing to grant future power? Well, you know, I, I mean, you can I do think the central problem facing our society today is the powerlessness of certain individuals just to give you and and Americans have a remarkable tradition of charity 31 for 35% of Americans volunteer on a regular basis they give resources we it's one of the great traditions in the United States that you don't find in other countries and people routinely say and now there's studies behind this that you know the most meaningful thing i do is i volunteer or when i give resources to other people, I actually feel better than if I spent them on myself. And so I really, in thinking about power for the past 20 years, I grew up, as I write about in The Power Paradox, I had this really interesting life experience where my parents moved me for various reasons from a middle-class neighborhood where everybody was doing really well. And they moved me to a really poor town in the mountains in California. And my neighbor on, I was just thinking about this, um, of 19 kids on the block or really a rural road. It was only my brother and me and one friend, Guillermo Campos, who went to college. So this was a very poor town. And that neighborhood reflected the toll of powerlessness in society. They were dying younger. There was a lot of mental health issues and drug issues. And I think that, you know, if, if we are in a position of abundance or if we're in a position where we can make ends meet, it's good to get out and find a part of society that doesn't get the breaks that we may have gotten and, and do some work. And so, you know, I had this chance to partner with the Sierra Club and get veterans outdoors. You know, we have a couple million veterans in the United States. They're often overlooking in our society, overlooked in our society. My lab know, has been studying how nature benefits us, how awe benefits us. And it was a no-brainer, you know, to, for me to pay a little money and do this research and see what happens to give something that I get regularly to people who don't have the shot at it. So, you know, it's just about 
really reorienting towards service. And in work, I'm just struck by how many opportunities leaders have to serve others at work, right? To go find the person whose mom is sick and is stressed out and figure out ways at work to be kind in, in response to that context. So I hope the readers of The Power Paradox, and I felt this, really have a, a new look at, at what they're doing at work through new conceptions of power. Well, absolutely right. And uh, for our listeners that aren't aware, Dacker was the founding director and, and continues as co-director of the Greater Good Science Center at Berkeley. And I think the title of that just says it all. The, the grant from the Hornadies, of course, has expanded into impacting so many through the good work that's done there. That's fantastic. Well, can we just uh, maybe as, as the last part, go back a little bit to the film Inside Out. <laughs> uh, again, when, when I watched the film, what I thought finished, quote, raising my kids, they were all out of the house and in college and so on. And I think any parent sometimes watches that film and says, boy, I sure messed that up with my kids. Or, hey, it looks like I did that right, according to these cartoon characters. But one of the things that was really powerful, and I believe you were the inspiration for this is that when joy is on her journey through memory, her companion is sadness. Yeah. And in our modern society, and I know in so many families, if a child is sad or let's expand it to business, a coworker is sad. We want to fix it really fast. Like, Hey, cheer up. There's nothing to be sad about. Hey, think positive thoughts. Let me tell you a joke. It, it's almost to cover it over, push it out. And yet what this film says is no, there's an incredibly valuable role to the universal human emotion of sadness. Can you expand on that a little? Because that was so resonant to me. Wow, Dan, what a what a terrific question. You know, thank you. Um, yeah, what a privilege to be part of the film. I, I couldn't believe it. Just to give you the backstory, Pete Doctor, who's the director of the film, was a friend and we've been on panels together and talked and he calls me up and he said, you know, I want to make this movie. And I was like, great. You know, and it's like, and it's about, human emotion. And I said, well, you know, I've been studying that for 25 years. Maybe I can be helpful. And he said, and I really want it to be about the central thing that I want it to be about is a family grappling with a young girl's movement into the teen years. And we know out in the literature, and I know your listeners will sort of know this from their own personal lives, that Families get sad when their teenagers grow up, right? They miss the simplicity of childhood and the, the warmth and teenagers need to move away. And we feel both parents and children, a sense of loss. I thought the movie revealed that theme of how you just have to embrace sadness in a more profound way than anything I've ever seen or read. And the central lesson was loss is part of life. It is sad to lose your childhood. It's sad to watch your child grow and miss their childhood. It's sad to move away from home. It's sad for parents to, it's just part of life. Um, you know, the first noble truth in Buddhism is there's a lot of sadness and loss and suffering in life. And, but we have these amazing emotions that help us connect in times of loss, like sadness. And the really interesting thing that happened in the movie, and this is bold leadership, and compassionate leadership, which has been what we've been talking about, Dan, is halfway into the movie, Pete shows Inside Out or the, the beginning structure of Inside Out to the, the decision team at Pixar. 
And they were, they said to Pete, like, you know, this is just too sad. Sadness is sad. Uh, it's bringing the movie down. Won't do well. Why don't you, instead of sadness going on the journey with joy, why don't you have fear? Because fear is kind of funny and it's Bill Hader. And Pete stuck to his guns. You know, he said, this movie has to be about sadness or I'm not going to I'll quit, you know, because that is the lesson of humanity that I want to provide. And, and I think, like you said, Dan, work today is more emotional. It, we work harder than we did 30, 40 years ago. It's more stressful. And one of the pieces of wisdom we can take from the movie is just to be accepting, you know, instead of telling people to cheer up or squash it, um, just to say, Hey, you know, how's it going? How's, I know your mom has dementia. Where are you with that? Or I know your teen is struggling. How's that going? And, and just these very subtle ways in which we can support are really a, a critical part of work today. And I can think of no better way to get wisdom about that than watching what happens in Inside Out. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. And we should also be very careful about dispensing unsolicited advice and platitudes. <laughs> just listening. Just listening is magic. Yeah. So boy, please. is it. Well, Dacker, this has been one of the fastest periods of time that I've spent in recent memory. Yeah. Just listening to you, um, getting more immersed in your work, the extension of when we just met when you were a college kid and I was a young manager. So yeah. to hear what you've done, the contributions you've made, your unselfishness in sharing with all of our listeners, I just want to thank you so much. Well, thank you, Dan. I, I think one of my first lessons in humble leadership was watching you those four summers that I sold books and um, I'm grateful we're still in conversation with each other. Well, absolutely. And we'll have that cup of tea as soon as we can make it happen. <laughs> Out here in Berkeley. That's great. Well, thank you again, Dacker Keltner. We are grateful for you. And oh, by the way, we all look forward to the sequel of Inside Out. I understand you believe there are 15 emotions. We can handle that many characters. <laughs> <laughs> if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to subscribe. To stay updated on everything that the Action Catalyst is up to, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Action Catalyst Podcast and Twitter at Catalyst underscore Action. Thanks for listening.